I love the program Inside the New York Art World with Barbara Lee Diamondstein. It's dated in such a wonderful way, and it has such enigmatic and historic guests on it. If you've never watched it, you should check it out. I don't have as much background on the show as I would like, but I found a segment with Lee Krasner, who is one of my favorite artists. She was an American abstract expressionist painter with strong specialty in collage, who was married to Jackson Pollock. Although there was much cross-pollination between their two styles, the relationship somewhat overshadowed her contribution for some time. But at this point in history, I don't think that's the case. I think Lee Krasner is a larger-than-life figure in contemporary art. So enjoy the following conversation between Lee Krasner and Barbara Lee Diamondstein from Barbara Lee Diamondstein's program Inside the New York Art World. This is the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Becker. Tonight is Lee Krasner, one of that group of New York artists who early on began to revolutionize American art. An artist for over 50 years, her work has influenced younger generations and her peers. A very warm welcome to you. Why don't we begin at the very beginning? Not at the very beginning. The beginning of your art life. <laughs> you were a student of Hans Hoffman. Uh, after the academy, I'm on my own for quite a while, then decide that I want to work from the model, can't afford my own model, and that's when I joined the Hoffman School, which is roughly thir 1937 by then. Although you were at his studio, I guess, for more than three years, and I assume partially because you could not afford your own model, your relationship with him was not a traditional one. And you've cited two reasons. And one was, if I may remind you, the lack of communication because of the language barrier. Can you tell us about that? Well, I simply could, uh, his, I couldn't understand one, at least the first six months that I was there, I understood not a word of what the man said. And I would wait until, and he did criticism, oh, I should think for somewhere between 25 and 35 students working from still life or the model. And I'd wait till he left and I'd call the monitor over, George McNeil, and ask him to, to tell me what he thought Hoffman had said to me, which was rather complicated, <laughs> before, I made, before I could understand Hoffman directly myself. The second significant aspect of that was the fact that you had discovered Cubism on your own. Well, I had certainly seen paintings of uh, the Cubist masters like Picasso, Mondrian, Matisse, before I became a Hoffman student, but specifically what Hoffman was teaching were the principles of Cubism. What was his most enduring influence on your work? I couldn't, I'm afraid I couldn't put my finger on that. <laughs> Uh, natural excitement, enthusiasm, seriousness about painting, and my own direct contact with Cubism. 
You mentioned Mondrian. Uh, you had never been to Europe, I guess, until about 1956. That's correct. Always very involved with the art scene. And one of your European heroes was Mondrian. How and when and where did you first come to meet him? Well, I, I can't remember the year, but there was a point at which Leger and Mondrian were visiting here, and I was then a member of the American Abstract Artists, and we had an exhibition once a year. And on this occasion, both Mr. Leger and Mr. Mondrian were invited to partake in our exhibition, and I think it was George L. K. Morris that did, uh, who was a member of the American Abstract Artists, uh, did a party and invited Mr. Mondrian, and that's how I met him, and consequently did the show with him. His work had already influenced you before you met him. Oh yes, oh yes. Uh, he was very much a hero for me before I met him. But you shared other interests other than your art. Perhaps. We discovered that we liked to listen to jazz and we went to, we used to go to cafe uptown or downtown, I can't remember now, and dance. <laughs> you said recently, you and your dancing partners, apparently it was a recurring theme that was not so far removed from your art life. Well, there are two outstanding ones. Mondrian was one with one of the most... I'm a fairly good dancer. That is to say, I can follow easily. But the complexity of uh, Mondrian's rhythm was not simple in any sense. <laughs> it wasn't easy for me to do it. And the other dancing partner was uh, Jackson Pollock, my husband, who was ghastly and stepped all over me. So those are my two dancing partners in the art world. On the scene at the very same time was an eccentric Russian emigre named John Graham. Who was he and in what ways did he influence you? He had an enormous influence on me. Uh, he wrote the book, I've forgotten the title of it, Dialectics in Art, I think it was, which I'd read long before I met him. Um, he invited me, uh, when I met him and he came to the studio, he invited me to partake in an exhibition in 42, I think it is, 41 or 42 of French and American painters, and the uh, unknown Americans were de Kooning, Pollock, and myself. So he, it had that kind of effect on me. By the way, I never danced with him. <laughs> so I don't know what kind of a dancer he was. He did invite you to participate in the show that you just mentioned, the, the exhibition at Macmillan. Right. Uh, that was of American and French paintings. Right. I assume that was really a challenge to the French avant-garde at the time to include these three Americans. As a result of that show, you met Jackson Pollock. Uh, yes, I, I knew de Kooning, but I didn't know Pollock. It's the show at which I meet Pollock. Can you tell us some of the events that surrounded that? Earlier on, you did meet him at 
a loft party, an artist union loft party about, yes. I guess, six years earlier. That's when he stepped all over my feet and we danced so terribly. And then there's a gap of, I don't know, three or four years before this Macmillan show. In fact, I didn't remember his name. He didn't remember my name. So it was in the re-meeting where we really established our relationship. And um, when you heard of Pollock in was going to be included in this Macmillan exhibition, uh, you referred to it as saying you heard there was this guy in your neighborhood doing abstract art, and you didn't know him. That's right. I looked him up. The idea was I thought I knew everyone that was painting abstractly. Gorky to Kooning's. Well, I had never heard the name Pollock, and the fact that he was in the area painting abstractly was more than I could take. So I made inquiries, got his address, went up, and met, introduced myself and saw his work. Did he live nearby? Block away. You were on 9th Street? I was on 9th Street between Broadway and University, and it turned out he was on 8th Street between Broadway and University, but I would never heard the name. And well, how did you meet him again? You just went to his studio? Yeah. I, I, knew, at, at, I knew several artists, and, and at one opening, I think it's a downtown gallery, Someone said, you know, there's going to be this exhibition and so-and-so is going to be in it. And that was the name Pollock. And I said, where does he live? And I got an address and went up there. And en route, you didn't even know what apartment he lived in. Well, I got to the top floor and someone was standing in the hall and I asked and they pointed to a door and I knocked at the door. And Who was the someone in the hall? Um, uh, Jackson's brother happened to be in the hallway and I asked for Jackson Pollock and he pointed to a door at one end of the hall and knocked the door and entered, introduced myself and that was the beginning of our relationship. I assume that was an unusual practice for someone to just come to Pollock's studio and to come unannounced. No, I didn't know it at the time. I learned that considerably later. <laughs> <laughs> In 1942, which was just about that same time, you began to paint directly from the subconscious. And it was long before you personally were involved in analysis, and I know it was at a time that Pollock was involved in analysis. How did you react to what was, to his analysis and the fact that that was a then unusual, uh... Well, to begin with, uh, my response to his painting had nothing to do with analysis. I was totally, uh, I was responding to painting. I then learnt that he was in analysis, yeah. which I, I was very shocked to learn. Very prejudiced, couldn't have been more against it. So that I had a conflict in response. That is, there was full response to the painting later learning, he's in analysis. I was very unsympathetic to that. At a point, you brought Hans Hoffman to Pollock's studio. And that, I assume, was a very important point in your own career because of Hoffman's response to Pollock's work. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us in some detail about that meeting and how Hoffman reacted to Pollock's work? to his then radical paintings? 
It was a rough meeting. I thought, as a former Hoffman student, that he'd be one of the few people to, to bring up their show, the work to, and that he'd respond. Uh, that wasn't quite what happened. The response went something like this. A Hoffman, in his teaching, um, independent of how abstractly you worked, um, stayed very closely with the image outside, whether it was the model or the still life. You had to adhere, absolutely. There was, you could reduce it to a vertical and horizontal measurement of space if you wanted to. He wouldn't object there, but you had to adhere to what was there in front of you. Well, when he, met, when he came up to Pollock's pli place, his response was uh, very talented, join my class, you work by heart, this is no good, you will repeat yourself. Needless to say, it was a very difficult meeting. How did Pollock react? Pollock said, uh, um, this is the place at which he, Pollock said, I am nature. Whereas Hoffman was saying, nature is out there, I am observing nature. That was the real big break. And how did this affect your relationship with Hoffman? Well, uh, let me put it, the transition I went through from the academy to cubism, I once more had to go through from cubism to Pollock after I responded to Pollock's painting. It was that much of a transition once more. You referred to some of these transitions in your life as swings of the pendulum. Why not? <laughs> was this one of the more significant ones? Yeah, this was a mess. Three solid years of buildup of gray mass on the canvas, nothing coming through. So it wasn't an easy transition. But it was that violent a transition for myself. I went through that. What was Pollock working on during that period? I don't know. I had my own problems. <laughs> I liked what he was doing, and those would have been some of his early shows. I had enormous admiration. But I was pretty preoccupied with those solid gray masses in my studio. For a long while, your own work was eclipsed by Pollock's legend. I think we should try to dispel some myths. There are many who thought that all the while that you were nurturing him and his career, you were not working. What were you doing during that period? I was working all the time. Uh, I doubt our relationship could have existed at all if I weren't working. Um, in terms of what other people think, uh, I can't do anything about that. You know, that's not my preoccupation anyway. As long as I was able to work, I went about my business. And what did you learn from Pollock's work? I don't know. <laughs> Just it. Um, let me put it this way. Uh, 
other than what I've said before, that the transition once more was as great from, let's see. If we think of the Renaissance concept of space, uh, where you are the artist up here, and whatever it is you're doing, only you're using perspective, is your means, and you are making your whatever you're doing with it. Now, if we go from that concept into cubism, the thing is still there in the same sense. Nature is there. I am here, the artist. I observe, and the only thing is it's frontal now, and that much has taken place. Now, in Pollock, once more, there's another transition. I can't define it for you. Sorry. It's not my job. <laughs> In a pre-women's lib era, how are you treated by your fellow artists? Well, it's a curious combination. Remember, I start in high school and it's only women artists, all women. Then I'm at Cooper Union, women's art school, all women artists. So to me, and even when I'm on WPA later on, uh, there's no, uh, you know, there's nothing unusual about being a woman and being an artist. It's considerably later that all this begins to happen. When the, uh, specifically, when the seat moves from Paris, which was the center, and shifts into New York, and I think that period is known as abstract expressionism, where we now have galleries, price, money, attention. Up till then, it's a pretty quiet scene. Uh, that's when I'm first aware of being a woman and a situation is there. You talked earlier about these frozen gray masses that you were faced with until uh, another swing of the pendulum. And you produced a major series of work between 1946 and 1949. I'm referring to the little images. Oh, yes. And what did the little images represent to you? Well, for me, the little images was the breaking up of that three solid years of gray mass and trying to make the transition. These were the first things that began to come through. So needless to say, I accepted them, finally. Now, at Pollock at that time, I really need references here to say exactly what was happening at that particular time. Does anything come to mind with that specific dates, but that general period? Well, we begin to see uh, Peggy Guggenheim has opened her gallery, and um, we begin to see Clifford Still. We begin to see Mark Rothko. Um, not the square, you see, the preformative stage, but you begin, and in fact, uh, a gallery is opened called, um, I can't remember the name of it, uh, Howard Putzel opened that gallery and um, put up a show, which he called a challenge to the critics, name that, what's happening. Were you in that show? Yes. Was a little image painting 
in that? Well, because here were these repeated images, verses, and overall right. kind of. But I can't it. remember at this point which painting, but I was in that show. Do you think that the little image series has emerged as a key to the rest of your work? I'm not, I wouldn't know. I know it's a part of it, a strong part of it, but I'm in no position to really evaluate it and say it's key or not key. You've often said that you can't be trusted with your own work for any period of time. And I assume it is a less than whimsical reference to the fact that uh, in two major periods, you have taken earlier work and cut it up, mm -hmm. destroyed it, mm -hmm. and remade it. Right. What made you decide to do something like that? It wasn't a decision. It happened, and then I observed what I did. Can you tell us about the first time what you did? <laughs> murder. <laughs> um, well, uh, on the first occasion, which takes it back to um, what became my 55 collage show, so it started some in 53, um, I had the studio hung solidly with drawings. You know, floor to ceiling, all around. Walked in one day, hated it all, took it down, tore everything and threw it on the floor. And when I went back, which was a couple of weeks later before I dared open that door again, I was, it was seemingly a very destructive act. I don't know why I did it, except I certainly did it. When I opened the door and walked in, the floor was solidly covered with these torn drawings that I had left. And uh, they began to interest me, and I started collaging. Well, uh, that was, they started with drawings, and then I took my canvases and cut, and began doing the same thing. And that ended in my collage show in 55. Now, this show, which is last year at Pace Gallery. I think there's a 20-year gap between my 55 show and this show. So I don't collage all the time. Uh, I picked up drawings I did at the Hoffman School, which dates them between 37 and 40. They'd been stacked away in the attic and hadn't gotten to them. And in fact, it was um, a friend of mine, Brian Robertson, who was in the studio, who uh, they'd still be in the portfolios unopened if he didn't have the kind of inquisitiveness he had. He opened the portfolios. And once more, I went through, I don't know how many of these drawings, made decisions on what I wanted to keep and what I wanted to destroy, only I didn't get to destroying them until I felt the need to start to work. And the first stage was cleaning up the studio, and I thought, well, let me start by getting rid of those drawings that I have to get rid of. And again, decided, no, I'm going to use them. I'm not going to destroy them, only I will not tear. The, the other were torn. 
So the only thing that was clear was that it had to be incisive. You used a Full scissors. definition, yeah. Knife or scissor, but no tear. And that led to this show. So why I go back on my own work in that way, uh, I don't know. I like the results, that's good enough. <laughs> there are a number of influences on your life, most notably Matisse. Mm. Can you describe how he has informed your sensibility and how your work? No, except that I still respond enormously to Matisse. I, I, I went up to Detroit to see the show. I missed it at Washington. And it's magnificent, and I respond that way to magnificent art. Do you consider him the most significant influence on your work? Mm, I don't like to do that. Right now, the Book of Kells interests me enormously. So that, let's say, um, if I respond, I don't care to measure it. <laughs> You've always been influenced by illuminated manuscripts. Well, for a long time, yes. Illumination as such has. <laughs> and you ma your reference to the Book of Kells, in what way does that influence you? Again, I wouldn't... I heard Mario Shapiro do his whole series of lectures at the Morgan Library and slides and so forth. But, like, it's very difficult for me to say in what way does it influence me. What's more, I don't care that I... I don't think I care to tap that source. I'm glad it's there, and I respond, and for me, that's quite enough. Your work goes from periods of no color to intensely colored mm. work. How do you explain that? Is that a result of the Hoffman influence? I don't know. I, again, color for me is a very mysterious thing. Um, certain colors I can use easily, others I can't without any lo logical explanation. Is there any color that has been more difficult to you, for you, than others? Yes, yellow is an extremely difficult color. Um, I don't know why. Or I might decide I'm going to uh, do a yellow painting, so I get all my yellow tubes of paint. Now that would seem relatively simple, but somehow or other it turns into a lizard, and I insist on letting it go the way it's going to go rather than forcing it. There are some colors that are especially pleasing to you, hmm. and I assume it's red and green and variations. Well, I don't know if it's pleasing or not. I sure use an awful lot of it. And very often we'll say very definitely, this is not going to be red and green, but it turns out to be red and green. So I uh, let it go that way, rather than willing it into whatever color I might decide to will it. I think that's part of the excitement of the thing. Are you planning a show anytime in the near future? Um, a solo show? Uh, as a matter of fact, yes, uh, in Texas, a works on paper show is going to be organized. Uh, next week, I think, we start on that. And the uh, show that's being worked now, which I think will be enormously interesting, is being done by Cornell and uh, the Whitney. And it's called 
abstract expressionism hyphen preformative years, and that ought to be damn interesting because the work there will not be the work as, let's say, a Rothko will not be a square. All the way up and down the line, that I think ought to be a pretty interesting show. And That's being worked on. There right. are a number of your works represented oh, in those that. Those little image and earlier things From I did early. From 36 to yeah, 39. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be in that show. And a few other things. I don't know. Well, we, like you, look forward to the retrospective and for providing us with a very special experience. Thanks to you, Lee Krasner, for being with us. And thank you for being with us, too. White Hot Magazine is one of the world's leading institutions for contemporary art. Follow us on the web and follow us on Instagram. You can also follow Noah Becker on Instagram. Enjoy the podcast. <laughs>